You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Brian Payne, community, say the whole thing because I always forget it. I always get it wrong. It's really hard, uh, but I'm the president and CEO of the Central Indiana Community Foundation. Thank you. Way to start, Robert. We appreciate your time and are excited Uh, for today's conversation. We're joined by Danielle Shockey, CEO of Girl Scouts of Central Indiana and all around rock star. She really makes these podcasts better, and I'm glad that she could join us today. Danielle, as always, take it. Be here. Absolutely. So Robert got that name with your help, CICF. It's also better known as. So for our listeners, Brian, um, tell tell them in that really short elevator answer, if you will, what is CICF and what is its importance in our community? So CICF, Central Indiana Community Foundation, is a community foundation. Now, a community foundation means that we are a public foundation and we're a 501c3. And we do three things. We're a grant-making organization. We are a philanthropic, charitable giving, resource counseling support organization. And we do that through having 500, at this point, in growing family funds, where we're supporting families and their philanthropic dreams. And then the third thing that we do is we're a community leadership organization. We have kind of use our uh, very privileged position of kind of being networked into the whole community and kind of seeing what different sectors are doing. So a lot of times we're the only organization that is in a room where there's seven different conversations all about central Indiana, but from different sectors. We're the kind of the, the glue that's maybe in all seven meetings. And so we have a unique perspective that sometimes can lead to a kind of a new idea or sometimes to champion someone's idea who needs partners to champion a good idea. Okay. So I want to break that down to like the dummies of community foundations, um, if you will, for listeners. Because frankly, there's a lot in that answer that you could unpack. Yes. Any one of those three parts. You told me to be short. Well, I did. <laughs> so now I'm going to ask you to not, to be long <laughs> okay. and, and, and explain kind of the history, like just the, the idea of a community foundation and why, why this one has existed as long as it has and kind of that genesis of its purpose. Yeah. So the history of community foundations really goes back to Cleveland in 1914, the very first one. And it was created by David Rockefeller's banker, who would ran the Cleveland Trust Company, a guy named uh, Frederick Goff. And he had two reasons. One was that there used to be these old, what they called dead hand trusts. There was these trusts that were legal. Like for, the, the main example always in Cleveland is at the time, 1914, that there was like this lot of money that someone set up to help people like pioneers that were moving through Cleveland, heading to pioneer the West, like in the 1800s. Okay. And, but in 1914, and so someone put a lot of money to, to be hospitable in Cleveland and help people in uh, Calistoga, Calistoga, Calistoga wagons, like heading West. But in 1914, there were no Calistoga wagons heading West, but there was money 
that was only good for that. So it was just sitting there doing nothing. And the idea was a Camille Foundation could be a structure that could actually, in a very responsible way, with good stewardship, unleash those old trusts that were just sitting there and doing nothing. That was one of the ideas. The other idea is it was an awesome business model for banks in which you could, um, and this is a little pejorative at the time, but you could get your wealthy clients to give money to a community foundation, have your bank manage that money in perpetuity, and get a really healthy fee on the management of that money. So it was both a good business decision and a good community decision. And they and this idea quickly spread. I think Rockefeller's banker had a lot of network. And so uh, in 1915, three or four cities created them. In 1916, we created one with three or four other cities in the country. And now there's 800 community foundations. And I think the key thing about a community foundation is unlike, so that if you look at the world of philanthropic foundations, right? There's Lily Endowment in our town, of course, and there's the Nina Mason Pulliam Trust and Crystal Lahan and the Fairbanks Foundation. Those are all private foundations. And that money came from one family or maybe a person. Our money comes from thousands of people over generations. So in fact, we have to meet a public support test. If we got too much of our money from one person or one family, we would actually no longer be a public foundation. We would have to cross over and be a private foundation. And of course, there's corporate foundations where the money comes from a corporation. So our money comes from the community. And uh, we all, I mean, all those foundations are serving the community. But we're really dependent upon, you know, again, uh, lots of gifts of $25 and $100 and funds that open up at $25,000 or $100 million. But it's really, we depend on, we need the community to support us as then we try to support the community. And so then, so that's on the receiving side, right? Mm -hmm, so that's mm -hmm. where all the support comes from for the greater good of the greater community. And so I know right now here recently, you've certainly re, I guess, energized what it is CICF wants to then use these resources for. Right. How do you, how do you come to conclusion with this most recent, I don't even want to call it a campaign. Well, uh, it's really actually, we changed our mission. Please. I mean, like, okay. like, so we've been really clear, which, you know, which we have to get the word out that we don't just have a new strategic plan. We have actually changed the mission of our foundation. The mission we've had over the last 20 years has served us well, and, it's, and it's, it makes a lot of sense or made a lot of sense. Our mission has been we inspire, support, and practice philanthropy, leadership, and service in central Indiana. And that was really concise and really accurate. What we've discovered through just a ton of data is that, and this is not just Indianapolis, this is every community, but some of our challenges are like, we have one of the lowest upward mobility rates of any large city in America. If you take the 50 largest cities, we're 47th out of 50 in upward mobility. So we have this situation where if you're born in poverty, you know, and this is all America, but we are trending worse than other big cities. If you're born in poverty, you're mo most likely to stay in poverty. You're less, much less likely now in this country in 2019 than in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s of the, 1900, the 1900s of not doing as well as your parents or surpassing your parents. So this, these are the parts of the American dream, right? This is the American dream that the next generation can be, do better, that anyone through hard work can lift themselves up and, and succeed. But the data is very clear that that's not happening right now, or it's not happening to the way it used to. And so uh, that's what we looked at, and we saw that there's this huge opportunity gap. The other third data point is with that upward mobility, race race, and racist systems play a huge 
part in keeping that mobility down. So we changed our, our, our new mission is we mobilize people, ideas, and investments toward creating a community where all individuals have the equitable opportunity to reach their full potential, no matter their place, race, or identity. Now, place is about zip code because mm-hmm. that's how everyone thinks about poverty. It's like if you're born in a zip code, uh, in, a, in a, a zip code that's low income, right now it's really hard to break out of that. And there's lots of reasons for this, including I think how networks have, you know, like, mm-hmm. like I look back at all the jobs I've had since high school. And there's only one out of like, say, nine jobs where I got on my own through ad, to just responding to a want ad. Every other job, someone in my network let me, you know, played a role in me getting that opportunity. And, and, and there's a lot of people who don't have the networks of opportunity. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of where we're going. But again, that's a new mission. We expect that to be our mission for the next generation or two. And, um, and so that's, you know. That's a, a bold new world that we're entering into. So when you look at the, uh, the pool of resources of the foundation with this new mission and dedication to the, the work that you're going to do, the, the dollars that you're going to expend mm-hmm. to help us achieve that, to your point, for the foreseeable long-term future, midterm, yeah. long-term, how, how does that get? So I'm Girl Scouts of Central Indiana CEO, right? We, we seek grants to help further our mission. Right. So people... Um, organizations come to the foundation and say, I have this idea. I want to make this systemic change. I think it's going to make a huge difference. And if it meets the criteria, so kind of talk about that other side of then how you are this conduit. And I don't want to, you know, truly a conduit, a pathway to making sure that the dollars are serving the better part of the community around this mission. Yeah. Great question. So, um, so we're overall, we're about $830 million in assets. But you have to take a look at where those assets kind of, you know, what, where do they sit within the, the foundation? So out of the $830 million, the Indianapolis Foundation part of us, um, which, which created CICF along with the Hamilton County Community Foundation, formerly known as the Legacy Fund of Hamilton County. So those two foundations representing Hamilton County and Marion County created CICF in 1997. And we're still all – we all exist uh, sometimes the Indianapolis Foundation kind of loses its brand and CICF kind of trumps it in Marion County, but they all still exist. And the Indianapolis Foundation has a its own $140 million endowment. We call that the endowment for Indianapolis. So if you take, if you spend 5% of that $140 million in grants, that's $7 million a year. So overall, the, the world of CICF grants about $55 million a year. $7 million of it is our own money that my board and I and my staff, we control that money. That's $7 million, We control that. I'm going to come back to that to answer mm-hmm. your question. But we give $55 million away. So the Glick family has a donor-advised fund with us and the Ephraimson family. But you know what? 500 other families do. And so there's a, you know, tens of millions of dollars coming from those families that are part of CICF. But our job, I mean, the, the money is legally ours, but it's morally theirs. Right? So the Glick Fund or the Ephraimson Fund, and they decide where they want to put their money. We have to approve it. And, you know, but as long as it's legal, you know, we'll approve it. And, but our job is to make their philanthropy better for the community, more meaningful, more thoughtful, but also better for their own, their own dreams. And so there's a lot of money moving out that way. Now, the super sauce... Uh, the secret super sauce of a community foundation is so is 
when we have an initiative or they have an initiative and we see that, our, that we both care about the same initiative. So sometimes the Glicks will say, you know, we're really interested in this Far East. They have a Far East side strategy. I mean, they have, they're transforming the Far East side. I mean, it's a hu- there's a huge challenge there, but they have made incredible progress on the Far East side, very meaningful change. And no one else, there was no momentum on the Far East side. There was no there there for a while. How are you defining Far East side? So, um, so um, 38th, 42nd, uh, Mithhofer, post, kind of post Mithhofer, German church. John Marshall. and John Marshall. Yeah, that's not, places. I mean, it's, it's broader than that. Yeah. Those are some of the kind of... The, significantly challenged. Yeah. And the city's actually trying to do good work there. It is. And the city has, I mean, the city's partnering. I would say that that the Glicks, through their commitment, I and mean, the reason why they're so committed there is they have a, they have a, a lot of their, first of all, Gene and Marilyn, when they first built their homes... Back in the 1950s, it started the Glick Company. It was on the Far East Side, their first homes that they built. But to this day, they still have... the original suburbs of post-World War II. Yeah, that's right. Um, And they still have um, really, you know, significant um, uh, apartment buildings that they built over the the decades. And so they're really... So they, you know, they have a lot of um, tenants and living in these apartments. And they want to help those tenants have more opportunity and more assets and... Um, you know, there's always people assets, right, in every neighborhood. But we're talking about, you know, kind of infrastructure assets or, um, um, you know, um, oh, um, you know, like, like there's no university there. There's no uh, what we call the anchor assets. There's no big anchor institutions. Like the Children's Museum is such an important anchor institution on the north, you know, at, at 30th and Capitol, 30th and Illinois. They're a huge player to make that part of our neighborhood structure have more opportunity because what the Children's Museum can bring. And the impact of the closing of Fort Harrison. Although there was significant, I mean, the Fort Harrison reuse people have done a terrific yeah. job, but it's not like it was. I was stationed at Fort Harrison for a while. And I mean, you have all these officers and enlisted men and senior NCOs and all that sort of thing, all living. They can't all live on post, right? <laughs> And so when I came back from the army, I lived at Twenty First and Post Marina Apartments, suite. <laughs> yeah. And you just drove around. And you're like, this is different than Irvington. It's the East Side, but it's different than Irvington where I grew up. It's it's noticeable. It was noticeable. And this is 1990, so 39 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a that's just an example I was giving about. So what will happen? So like, it's not always that we're you know we're going to our fund holders and saying, hey, would you co-invest with us? Sometimes we co-invest in them. That's a mutually beneficial relationship. But the, the power is when we both are concerned about something, we can co-invest. I mean, go, go, you know, the cultural trail, which was an idea that I had in 2001, you know, the, the, first, um, the first two significant funders were Murdapolium individuals. It was Murdapolium, Lori Ephraimson, it was uh, Nine Mason Polium Charitable Trust and Lumina Foundation. But it, Lori and Murda had funds with us. And then the Glick family came in with a $15 million contribution to really give the juice to the cultural trail to, to get really you know, great momentum about building all eight miles. They, you know, they had a fund with us. Now, that doesn't mean they were, I, I couldn't spend their money, but it meant I had the relationship that I could go to them and 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 have a serious conversation about how the cultural trail could connect into their own uh, philanthropic uh, values and priorities. 
So that's, you know, so there's all of that. But the Indianapolis Foundation, uh, which we do control directly, has $7 million it can give away. And we've decided that we're going to have, in this next five years anyway, 51% of that, so a little bit more than Actually, a million goes to li- the library, the libraries through a library fund. It's a little bit more restricted. So we have six million that's not library funding, and fifty-one percent of that six million will go to any not-for-profit who makes a proposal that we think is compelling and good for the community. It doesn't have to match our initiatives, though it does it probably have to speak at some level to opportunity, equity, and inclusion. Sure. Okay, but the other forty-nine percent, a little less than three million is going to support our initiatives and our strategic plan that are around economic mobility, family stabilization, dismantling systemic racism, uh, criminal justice reform, and neighborhood empowerment placemaking. So that money is like in partnership. Now, like when the Girl Scouts, if they have this idea, it's like, oh my gosh, that would be on, they would be an awesome partner with that idea we should partner with them, not just grant to them or to you, but partner with you on something, then that can come also could come out of the, the 2.9 million as opposed to the 3.1. So that's how we, that's how kind of how we strat, you know, we, we kind of strategize all that. But we might, you might have something and we say, gosh, you know what? We just don't have the, we love it. We don't have the money, but you know what? This family is exactly zeroed in on what Danielle's talking about. Let's get her in front of this family. Mm-hmm. We have to do a better job of that. That we, we do that, we do that well with a small number of families. We're trying to scale like through technology, and we're trying to find systems that make that happen way more. And it doesn't just depend on do I have the time to connect you to a family. That there's actually systems that are that are um, uh, advocating for sure. that. Sure. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You mentioned the Glicks earlier. Eugene Glick, you see his name but most people don't know his story. His story is absolutely phenomenal. Not only is he an IPS kid, he went to Short Ridge, I think the same time as Vonnegut. I think they were contemporaries, Kurt Vonnegut. We need to do a Kurt Vonnegut podcast, actually. But he also documented the liberation of Dachau concentration camp. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. What was it like to be involved with with him, to know him and understand how much he loved his hometown? Yeah, um, it was an uh, incredible privilege, though I, my timing was a little off personally. I mean, when I, was at, when I was at the IRT, that was my job before this, so I, I moved to Indianapolis from California to be the managing director of the Indiana Repertory Theater from, ni- from 93 to 2000, and then I came over here in 2000. Now, Gene really wasn't involved in in the IRT, but every once in a while, I would get this beautiful handwritten note that would say, "Brian, I I, I was I, I saw this play or something. I, I couldn't see the play, but people have told me, you know, the play was awesome, and I just feel like what you guys are doing at the IRT is really important, and I hope to try to get more engaged." I mean, it was and we get so excited, you know. Uh, there was Gene Glick, uh, you know, knowing that we uh, you know existed at the IRT. Um, 
but I found out later, which is no way to despair, I mean, is that Gene would uh, sit down with some with a staff person or a you know someone he engaged like a, as a contract person who had beautiful handwriting. But Gene would would sit you know he'd sit there and he would dictate um, notes, and so he would be sending out you know five ten notes. I don't know how many exactly, but a number of notes every week like that. But I just thought that was awesome, and that was kind of my bridge to him. And then when I got the job at the Community Foundation, um, he uh, I got invited. I was one of the many people that would get invited every once in a while to break bread with Gene. So two or three nights a week, he and Marilyn would invite people in the community out to, out to dinner to break bread and have these conversations. And I got the chance to do that two or three times. By the time the Cultural Trail came around, my first couple pitches were with Gene. But as it got kind of the level of seriousness around a $15 million gift, he had kind of deferred that to some of his, his own team. And, and, and Gene was um, starting to slow down a little bit at that point. So I did get the great privilege of being with him when he was still, you know, super robust and vibrant and, and this incredible businessman and community-engaged person. Um, I wish I had an earlier decade of that. Um, I, I, one of my, the big honors of my life was I was asked to be part of, I guess I, guess I represented the, uh, the not-for-profit sector at his memorial service. And I told the story okay. about how the cultural trail was first introduced to him. And, and this, is, this is the way I, I remember it, is that Gene had this, he wanted to do like some version of a St. Louis Arch or the Seattle Space Needle. And so he would invite people in, like, to have lunch with him at 2.30, by the way, at MCL and Broad Ripple. I had to, when I had lunch with him, which was only a couple times, I had dinner with him a couple times and lunch, but I had to have lunch before I had lunch because I couldn't <laughs> wait till 2.30 to have lunch and be sharp, you know, and try to... Because there, there was that Riverside Tower that they proposed over at White River for a while. It was, remember, do you remember that? I don't remember It's going to be this thousand foot tall, roughly. Kind of oh, in White River, yeah. Well, yeah. But it was this huge tower that they talked about it was all limestone or whatever, and it kind of went away. Is you vaguely familiar with I, that? Yeah, I am. Yeah, actually, that just came up in conversation recently. I was a Cesar Pelli. It was like a super famous architect who was young back in those days who had this idea. And I think they ended up doing a version of that tower in some other city in Europe or something when we didn't execute on it. But Gene, so I think maybe Gene was inspired by that. I don't know if he was involved in that, but Gene was, I want to do something that honors great humanitarians who made the world better through peaceful pursuits as opposed to war heroes. Because he was, as Robert said, he was so involved in World War II in major moments of World War II. And he felt like war heroes got their due. But what about the people who made life better through every day, like innovation or through literature, like Mark Twain or Jonas Salk? Jonas Salk was always his his kind of example. I want to honor people like Jonas Salk. Because he grew up in the polio generation. Yeah, right. That was the great fear. Yeah. And Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, obviously exemplified it as president that you could overcome it. But for his generation, it was it was the great. Oh, my God, please not let my son have or daughter have polio. Yeah. Yeah. So Gene wanted this big you know, thing. And so my on his memorial service, I, I exaggerated the story for effect. But basically, he would call not for profit people in and have them pitch their idea. And, and the way I talked about it is that he'd call them in and they'd pitch their idea and he'd look at them and say, off with their head. You know, like we were like the court jesters coming in to the king and pitching this idea. And so that's how I felt when I pitched the <laughs> cultural trail to them, you know, to them the first time. And I didn't get, 
you know, off with his he- with his head, but I didn't exactly get a, you know, a, a round of applause. I didn't get either. knighted either. I didn't get knighted. That's right. Good point. So is that the genesis of the Peace Walk? Go it ahead. is. It is the genesis of the Peace Walk. Um, so, um, a, you know, there's the Peace Walk is between. Is it? Is it? Um, Capital and Illinois. It's or uh, between Illinois, Illinois and, and Senate. Right. Um, two, two blocks, really beautiful part of the cultural trail that incorporates Gene and Mary, you know, Gene's idea of honoring people through peaceful pursuits. And then Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King are downtown as kind of markers to the Peace Walk that has 10 humanitarians. And then there's the, the two that are downtown, one by the convention center and one on Washington and Virginia. That's uh, Martin Luther King and then Abraham Lincoln's by the convention center. That's all, that, that's really how we kind of built Gene's idea in to honor, you know, what he wanted as, and one of the ways we pitched, ultimately pitched him and his team was instead of copying other cities and doing a 500 foot tall space needle arch, let's do a 50,000 foot linear trail that people can use every day and just instead of just going up to the space needle every once in a while i i just my oldest friend lives in seattle and i we were together for a the one weekend we get to see each other every year and he uh, i asked him when, when's the last time he went to the space needle he lives in seattle it's like i think it was when you and i had dinner there like 25 years ago mm-hmm. you know i mean the space needle is awesome but it's not like you make it part of your everyday life if you live there the cultural trail, if you live downtown, can be part of your everyday life. So that's it. But we had, but we wanted to also honor his peace idea. The cultural trail is probably the most identified part of downtown that isn't specifically about sports or military. Mm-hmm. As someone who is on it on my bike every day and wave to you as you <laughs> come yep. past me with your Pacers bike share bike, yep. what's it like? to have the kernel of an idea for something that transforms connectivity in the mile square and beyond, but downtown and to see it come to fruition. What's it like from, can you think of the first day where you went, Hey, what about this? And then to the last time you walked or rode on it. Yeah. Um, you know, it is a, uh, a wonderful feeling for me. And I, I met my uh, wife, Gail, working on the cultural trail. We were, we, I'd met her before, but we fell in love working on the cultural trail together. So there's a huge legacy of, in my life of the trail, it, it was, uh, you know, it was just 11, it was 11 years of work. If someone had told me up front, by the way, Brian, I think you can do this, but it's going to be 11 years. I said, no, I'm not spending 11 years. I thought it was going to be five years of work. I was prepared to spend five. But when we got all done, we were actually really missed it. I mean, we really, it was like we went through a withdrawal, not just Gail and myself, but our whole team, which we had become great friends, this kind of core of the team. And so it was, it was so much fun to work on. Uh, when it was done, it was like, wow, that was so much fun. We were going to find anything as fun as that as a, as a uh, project. So it, it was, it was inc- it's incredibly fulfilling. I do remember, so the trail has, has been all done, really, 90%, 99% done was done by the Super Bowl in 2012. And there's a little bit of additional stuff in 2013. And then in May of 2013, we had this awesome that Gail and Mindy Taylor-Ross and other 
friend and teammate. Rock star, Mindy uh, yeah, Taylor Mindy Ross. Taylor Ross, an star. amazing project manager, amazing art curator. She's working for people all over the world. She's working for Cummins all over the world. She's incredible. And Gail and Mindy co-produced this kind of day-long celebration with 80 arts organizations all over the trail. It was, a, it was an amazing kind of capstone. And it was like two weeks later, or maybe it's maybe it's a year later, and we walked out of our building, our, our office here at CICF at North and Alabama, and we it was a beautiful day like it is today, and there's lots of people on the trail, and then we were seeing some of the new development on the trail, and it was this moment. It's like wow, you know, the trail has actually lived up to all of its promises, and we we had a lot of promises. I mean, we had a high expectations, of, but it actually has overlived. I mean, it has actually over delivered on its promises. But I remember that one night just that magical moment where Gail and I looked at each other and it's like, wow, you know, this project that we worked on and met on and we dreamed up, it actually, it really worked. And it actually has a bit of a legacy. Now, at the time, I never doubt that it was, I always said, we will work through any challenge. And now when it was all done, you look back and say, well, that was really naive. And now I'm really humbled by the amount, looking back about the amount of good luck Ser- actually serendipity. And now that the fever has broken, I'm actually being rational about the trail where I wasn't when I was in the middle of it. It's like, there's so many things that could have, with the same amount of effort that could have derailed that. And somehow we, every time we needed a break, we got a good break. And so how did that happen? It's like, wow, I don't know. It's just like really, Let me ask you about really that. fortunate. Let me ask you, and I'll ask one more question then let Danielle take over. Recently recorded a podcast with Paul Okeson, who was oh, yeah. former chief of staff to Greg Ballard, and uh, Michael Connor, former chief of staff, senior deputy mayor for Bart Peterson. And I asked them, in previous people who had worked in the mayor's office, you talk about what what you did, but there are specific things that people will say, when I see X, it reminds me of my time in the mayor's office. Joe Loftus said the mall. For me, it would be the Irvington Charter School because when they closed the Guardian's home, and <laughs> this is so Greg Ballard, they closed the Guardian's home. They decided not to send people there. I grew up across the street from the Guardian's home. I went to Mayor Ballard and said, did you see they're closing the, Marion, the Guardian's home? We've got to do something. We can't let that sin empty in the heart of Irvington. And Ballard, without looking up, goes, we'll do something. <laughs> I know. So I walked into Krieger Rausch's office and said, let's figure something out. So that's what I think of. And and other people talk about this. I was involved, David Harris, Charter School's Off the Charts. His podcast is upcoming with us. But navigating the world of politics to get something done is not the easiest thing in the world. It may be easier in Indianapolis. Matter of fact, I would argue it is easier in Indianapolis. But in 2007... Mayors changed and the parties changed. How did you navigate that both before and after? And what is your impression overall of how people come together in Indianapolis to do the right thing? Yeah, boy, you know, um, so yeah, we got Mayor Peterson to, a, you know, green light the cultural trail. And I remember Jane Henniger, deputy mayor, now the uh, incredibly effective head of our ACLU of Indiana. Um, she was so she, I, I had I had worked through the mayor's office 
Um, I started with my friend Kira Amstutz, who had a, a role in Mayor uh, Peterson. She was kind of the arts and cultural liaison. She's so, terrific. Yeah, so I started with her. Um, I worked with Melina Kennedy on the economic development. I mean, she was the head of economic development for Mayor Peterson um, and three or four others before I ever went to BART. And I knew BART really well, but I wanted to like go through and get enough momentum before I went to the mayor. And so, and then actually, then he delayed it. He delayed it for a year because, which made sense because he was trying to convince the state legislature that Indianapolis was broke so that he could combine, you know, the township governments. I don't know if you remember that. Indy Works. Indy Works. And so it was, he said, look, I really like this project, but I can't, even though we're not putting any city money in it, we're going to help you raise money from the feds and all that. But um, even though we're not putting any money in it, I'm not going to be able to convince the state legislature that we're a, a city that's financially broke. And then they say, well, how are you building a $50 million trail? And he said, even though I can say that's not our money, you know, it's just too, it's, it's too, it's too confusing to get that point across. So we had to delay that through Indy Works, went through. And then I remember Jane calling me up and said, um, can we have lunch today? And I said, yeah, what's up? And she said, I just need to talk to you. And I knew that lunch was either going to be thumbs up or thumbs down. And I had been working on this for five years up at that point. And when she said the mayor is going to green light this project, I was, it's one of the happiest moments of my life. And then, you know, so we had a green light from a mayor. And so when he lost to Mayor Ballard, and I, I don't know if Robert, if you, I mean, if you know, remember this, I, I remember it. So I'm watching that on TV, and I am very concerned because I don't know anything about Greg Ballard, right? Because no one knew anything <laughs> about Greg Ballard the night that he won. Imagine that. But it was, um, oh my gosh, it was a, um, and I just, I, I like him, and uh, um, so it's uh, our county prosecutor, Carl Brizzy. Carl oh Brizzy. yes, when he said no more this and no so more. So Carl that. Brizzy yes. was the, 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 the mayor Ballard's party was at the Mirah old now his old victory, national the election night. Yeah. yeah, his victory party, and Carl Brizzy was in the parking lot being interviewed, and it's like, yeah, well, there's a new sheriff in town, there's a new mayor in town. We're not going to do anything like this stupid trail stuff. I mean, I'm not watching on TV. I'm already very very concerned that I have to now deal with the new mayor that I have no idea, and his. You know, not his official spokesperson. Robert was his official spokesperson, but someone who was speaking on his behalf was basically pointing to the cultural trail and saying, none of this stuff. And we only had a half a mile done. We had raised the money for the next four miles, and we needed to raise money for the following three or four, but we had only completed a half mile. And so if a new mayor is like, I don't like this idea, forget about it. I mean, I really was super concerned that that was the end of the dream that night. And, but Mayor Ballard being, you know, someone who was, you know, always proud, prided himself and lived this idea that if it's good for the community now and 50 years out, you know, I don't care who gets the credit, I'm going to do it, you know. And um, it took him a little while to, I mean, he never did anything that once he became mayor that made me concerned, but it took him a little while to actually fall in love with the cultural trail, but he ultimately did. But then, ironically, he became the best mayor in the country for Greenway Trail, trail connectivity, multimodal transportation. I mean, ironically, we couldn't have gotten a better mayor that would support everything. And that's another piece of great fortune the trail had. Well, that's exactly right. And what people never really – it took them a while to understand about 
Greg Ballard is, is that he had lived all over the world through his service in the Marine Corps. So he saw how Paris and London and Stuttgart and Manila and other places did things. And he brought so much of that back to Indianapolis, whether it's bike lanes or bike trails or electric cars and that sort of thing, that, that he was much more cosmopolitan and certainly much better traveled than most, if not all, mayors. And so I think it's safe to say that Bart Peterson deserves an A-plus and Greg Ballard deserves an A-plus. I, I would agree. And uh, the trail would not have happened if it wasn't for both of them. And Brian Payne deserves an A+. Plus and <laughs> well, thanks. Many folks do. Sure. Well, I, and I want to stay on the transportation vein a little bit, but move away from the cultural trail if, trail if we might. Um, so in doing research to get ready to talk to you today, read about some, I guess, maybe dream vision you have next around mobility and individual mobility and maybe some technology integration and the future. Talk about... Because we're now seeing the red line, we're living some new things in our community. But what what is your vision so it really helps people be lifted up and have all kinds of access? Right. So it's called the Personal Mobility Network is the project. And actually, uh, the very first person when I – there's like a long, too long a story about how kind of the, the, the data and the different conversations connected into this idea. But the very first person I mentioned it to was Mayor Ballard at Zubilation. I saw him at Zubilation, you know, and you, and you have two minutes to talk to this a thousand year, 2019? people. 2019? No, no, no. This was back when he was still mayor. So this is back to, um, so what are we talking about? Um, 2015, maybe. His last year's mayor. Yep, maybe 2014. And, uh, you know, you get two minutes to talk to people at Zubilation, you know, a thousand people, two minutes each, or a hundred people, two minutes each. So I got my two minutes. And I said, hey, hey mayor, I just, I, I just was thinking about this. Let me pitch it on you. And he was like, yeah, I think that has, you know, and he had some ideas about it. You know, we had this nice, really conversation. That was the first person I socialized it with. So fast forward four years. And so the idea is, now now everyone is, every every city, not every city, but many big cities are looking about how to, you know, take what we've learned from Uber and Lyft and take it to another level of information, real-time information on apps, okay? Now, four or five years ago, not every city was thinking about that, but they are now. But here's the secret sauce of Indianapolis is I think there's an opportunity not just to provide information about how to travel in different ways through different modes, combining modes, but because we're a community where everyone works so well together is that I want, like, for example, I want, uh, you know, I mean, if you look at our assets, it's all about looking at our assets. We have the cultural trail. We have great bike infrastructure. We have a really, really effective bike share. We have Blue Indy, the first of its, of its kind, and still not too many cities have anything like that. And that still plays a very important role. We now have the red line. There's Uber and there's uh, you know, Lyft out there too. There's the, you know, the scooters. Now, the scooters, I know I was supposed to mention scooters to Robert. That was a pre-show note. Do not mention scooters to Robert Vane. Just don't mention them being on the left on the cultural well, trail. Well, yeah. So the scooters, I'm, I was very excited about how the scooters could play a role in this. Now, I'm very not excited about how scooters are being operationalized, how people are abusing, how the whole scooter world is not a respectful one. It's not a safe one. But if we could get people to understand the positive power and act with a little bit of maturity about the scooters, then it could be a really positive asset. But this idea of where, where everyone else is looking to provide real-time information, how to access this stuff, we want all of these things to integrate and work to create a system. And then, of course, we'll deliver the technology Ideally, a single pay system where like you could have 
like you could have an account on your phone. But we also have made a decision, and there's a lot of partners on this. I mean, there's all the partners you'd expect, but then we were able to recruit Tom Leinbarger, CEO of Cummins, to, um, to chair a corporate advisory committee, which has created a ton of momentum. And John Lechleiter's on that. And John Lechleiter's on the, on the board of Ford Motor Company, which is a major player in this. So we have all this momentum. We have a major initiative with Ford. But the idea is to take all of that and focus on it as an equity play. Really make sure it works for people who cannot afford to own a car or buy a car. And if it works for them, then it'll work for everyone else. But we really want to make it work for them. And one of the ideas is to have like a transportation savings account. So as a veteran, you know, could the Veterans Administration or philanthropy say, if you qualify as a veteran and you have a job and you need transportation assistance, maybe, you know, maybe there's a $200 a month um, a subsidy that goes into your transportation savings account, which is on your phone. If you don't have a smartphone, we'll give you a smartphone. And now you can use that. And you say, okay, I'm, I'm living you know, in uh, uh, the Near East Side and I need to get to my healthcare appointment at Eskenazi. And you, can, you just say, I need to go to Eskenazi. And it says, well, how, you, know, and you've, you have this default about how you want to travel and how you manage your money. And so it says, okay, it's a nice day. I'll ride my bike for one to three miles. But then after that, I need to catch a bus or I need to Uber the last mile. And it's like, okay, you need to get to Eskenazi based upon your own preferences. Here's how you do it, and here's how much this trip will cost. And it just makes it seamless for everybody. And so we've got a lot of momentum. I mean, it's, a, it's another big idea. It, it's going to need the good fortune the Cultural Trail had. Um, I know even less about technology than I did civil engineering, and I knew nothing about civil engineering. So the technology kind of scares me, but it doesn't scare other people, and we've got really smart people on the team. Yeah. So we're, I mean, I mean, we've already made a ton of momentum and uh, we've got Indigo and the Chamber and Central Indiana Corporate Partnership and the MPO and the Mayor's Office and Veterans Affairs are all partners with us. And we might just pull it off. So as a, I have a daughter with special needs who someday will need transportation. She'll probably live semi-independently. But that idea of any kind of social networking opportunity that gives her access and, and people like her, right? I think there's yes. so and, – and to your point about the, the transportation spending account – how exciting could that be? Take that one step further. You know, she. You know, whether that's subsidies for other groups of people. Right. And you know? and one of the one of the uh, you know as we go back to our our mission about you know uh, opportunity for all. Mm-hmm. You know, we're also paying attention to people with disabilities. How do we, how do they reach their full potential? How do we create a community that enables them to reach their full potential? And transportation for people with physical disabilities is a real challenge. And and so we're working on that too. We haven't forgotten. And that was about part that. of the cultural trail. Mm-hmm. It was. We won. We Greg won some major Fairbach. awards. Greg Fairbach played a oh, huge he's role. So great. And we won. We've won some major awards for the um, for how um, accessible it is with people for disabilities. And Greg was our, you know, Greg, and, and he had this lovely woman who was his associate who played a major role too. So, what year? If you were going to bet on the bet on this coming to fruition, what do you think? Eleven mm, years from now? No, I, I, I never think beyond five years. So. Uh, Three, uh, five years. Awesome. <laughs> five All years. Right. We could pull this off in five years. Yeah. Could blow up tomorrow too, but we hope to pull it off in five years. We're rooting for you. Thank you. You mentioned uh, upward mobility earlier, so I'm, let me tie a couple things together. Uh, you recently spoke at the 
IPS equity event. Um, the state of the district speech by the superintendent, Alicia Johnson, mentioned that quite a bit. Racial equity and and pulling together to try to have more upward mobility, uh, better education, better education options. Um, why do you think it is so important to emphasize education beyond kind of the platitudinal answers? But you've been involved. You've worked with so many leaders from so many organizations do you believe education sets people apart in terms of opportunities? And how would you describe the landscape of both educational options and racial equity here in Indianapolis? So um, before I spoke today at uh, the IPS Racial Equity Summit, I set in on one of their workshops for an hour and a half that was created by, that was a, um, a learning, a teaching from the Racial Equity Institute. And they showed pretty much in every, any city in the country, and they showed it for Indianapolis, just the, you know, every, every outcome is negative for African Americans versus white people in every outcome, Inclu- you know, not, but not just education, everything, health, uh, um, life expectancy, infant mortality, education, unemployment, everything, every system has been somehow evolved and designed to work against black people and other people of color. So I do think education is super important. Um, I think we made the mistake that many people made back in like the 2008. We had a college readiness and success initiative. And at that time, I mean, Lumina was doing, and we all were doing this. Everyone was doing this. That was where we were at that moment. And it was part of the tech boom. Yeah, yeah, I think right. Every yeah, right. I think everyone got take advantage of the new economy, and to do so, you must have X number of years of college or X number of degrees. That's exactly that's exactly right. That if you weren't part of the knowledge economy, you did not have a future. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, where what jobs? Like if my son didn't go to college, what jobs could he have that actually he could make a living? I'm out. This is kind of the the thinking of two thousand seven, six, seven, eight, whatever. You know, that was an overreach, you know. Now I think I, I think it's important. I mean, certainly education is a huge, you know, creator of opportunity for, for many people. I think we need to think more broadly. I think we are not just we say ICF. Everyone's thinking more broadly about education being, you know, post-secondary skills attainment. Or, you know, it's not – for a while we, we thought everyone had to get a four-year degree, right? I mean, this country thought everyone had to get a four-year degree, and we were part of that thinking. And now I think it's like – I'll give you an example. I had this incredible aha. Some, you know, I have some more to learn about it. But my friend Diamon Hargis, who is um, this incredible black neighborhood leader that lives in between MLK and Clifton on 33rd. And Diamon has basically taught me a ton of things over the last 10 years. And he's actually really informing a lot of our work in the neighborhoods. He's a special advisor. And he and, and one of our CICF neighborhood ambassadors, Wild Style, who's Diamond's neighbor, the three of us wanted to do a road trip, and we went to Cincinnati. Did for a 24-hour road trip, spent the night, had dinner, had awesome conversations. But Diamond also introduced us, and Wild Style and me, to his good friend, a guy named Peter Block, who talked about a legend. He's a legend in the world of organizational development. He has worked with like Exxon and, you know, I don't know, Bell Labs. I mean, he's been 
a guru. He's 80 years old, still super incredibly uh, wise and sharp. And we had breakfast with him and we've had follow-ups. Peter got us a special uh, tour and um, site visit of something that Cincinnati has called the Hip Hop Cultural Center. Now, what I knew before then about hip hop was almost nothing. What I know now is a, a little more than nothing, and I'm, but I'm studying up on it. But here's, what we, here's my point about the Hip Hop Cultural Center is that that, first of all, Peter said, look, here's how we change the game. We asked black kids, 16 to 24, black youth, 15 years ago, after the Cincinnati riots, they had race right. riots, right? Mm-hmm. This was a result of trying to do things differently in Cincinnati after a crisis, after a race crisis. You know, we've never had a race crisis, um, thank goodness. But sometimes, you know, a crisis is, you know, a terrible thing to waste. So Cincinnati didn't waste their crisis. So he, instead of like assuming what black kids might want or how we think they need to engage in education as white, well-meaning, you know, educated people... He turned the tables and he went and he and his team went out and they asked a ton, you know, a large number of black kids, what do you care about? What are you passionate about? What are you good at? What do you want to do? And a majority of the answers was something that that was hip hop culture. So it could be, you know, graffiti. But if you look at graffiti in a more positive way, visual arts, arts, you know, laying down beats, being a DJ, um, being an MC, dance. These are all the things that this does. And these kids now are doing it because they're passionate about it. Since they're passionate about it, they're really good at it. And now there's all these transferable skills. So people are getting jobs. You know, they're getting jobs as graphic designers because they started studying uh, graffiti in a, in, in a more serious way. They're getting tech jobs because if you can lay down beats on a sophisticated uh, sound system, that, that's, that's software and technology and how to operate all these things. And they're getting tech jobs. So I think what we really do need to think of as especially well-meaning white people in power is what is broadened the kinds of skill sets and education and think about it in a different way. And for me to think about it in a different way, I actually need to have people of color around me teaching me to think about it in a different way. So I think education is you know, awesome. You know, it's incredibly important, but I think we need to be more flexible and more broad and more adaptable to how we think about the NIPS experience. and I should disclose they're my client, but IPS emphasizes the three E's employment uh, enlistment because too often uh, the military isn't thought of as a, as a real, not just an honorable thing to do, but as a real springboard to the next phase of your life. And I mean, there's too many examples to mention yeah, the skills that you acquire. Right. And the last one would be enrollment, enrollment in a two or four year college, but we're a one year certificate program now possible. Yeah, and you've had some of the best uh, uh, industrial arts or career and technical education facilities in the state right down the street at Arsenal Tech and other places. Uh, we have time. Daniel, I want you to ask one more question, then we'll get to the five questions. All What's right. your best question you haven't asked yet? You know, so actually I want to tie a couple things together. So I heard Alicia Johnson speak. And so this isn't an IPS question. Actually, I want you to tie this question to the work of the foundation. She gave the analogy or the imagery of a lake. And on that lake is thousands and thousands of dead floating fish. 
And she made the connection to say, we would never look at that, or most of us would not look at that and say, what was wrong with the fish? But we would say, what was wrong with the environment? And I feel like what the foundation is doing is saying, what is in our environment, in our community, that is causing the lack of opportunity, equity, and inclusion? And therefore, what you're doing, in my opinion, is trying to get at the root causes and make changes. So my, I guess my question in all of that is, we've talked about education, we've talked about transportation, what else in this lake pond analogy would you say is, in your mind, one of the top priorities outside of education and transportation to make a huge foundational community difference? Um, that's a great question. So um, you know, pretty much every system what we've learned, what we've learned through the data, what we've learned through uh, hanging out with really smart people like Alicia and also the Racial Equity Institute, where she's learned that metaphor from them. And, and, uh, and, well, and it, we, it's a great picture. It is a great picture, right? I mean, one fish is it's the fish, one dead fish in a lake, it must be the fish's problem. A hundred or a thousand dead fish, that's a lake problem. That's a water problem or an ecosystem problem. We have an ecosystem problem in this country when it comes to people of color. It's the systems that are broken. It's not the people that are broken. And, um, and uh, so, you know, so in this first five years, you know, well, criminal justice, Criminal justice is probably, you know, we, we, we weren't going to do criminal justice. It was my staff who, like, on a draft of our strategic plan, we had already four major initiatives. I already thought it was, the, at the time, the most ambitious strategic plan of any not-for-profit I've ever seen before. And then this next draft has, oh, and we're going to do criminal justice reform. And I thought, <laughs> you're killing me, people. How are you going to do that? That's huge. And the answer was, we can't say we're going to dismantle systemic racism if we don't deal with the most racist system of all, criminal justice. I mean, I'm heartbroken about this news. I mean, uh, last night, yesterday, in Fort Worth, where a wonderful, highly educated, young black woman who was babysitting her eight-year-old niece was shot in her own home by a nervous police officer, a white officer, who's now resigned today, but that doesn't bring her back. Right, so criminal justice is um, the biggest problem. So we're working on that, and um, so. But you, you mentioned them. You mentioned transportation. We think transportation is huge because if you, if you can't get to opportunity, there is no opportunity. Affordable housing. We believe that's important, but we especially, we believe it's especially important near transit orient near transit stops. So we're you know we don't have enough money to make a huge dent in affordable housing. It's such a big problem, but we could make a, some dents and make sure that there's affordable housing near red line or blue line or purple line stops. So we're going to focus on that. And I've already made some investments, um, education, workforce development. Um, you know we have some donors. Some, this is a good way back where donors have influenced us to focus on infant mortality. We haven't done a lot of, about health over I mean, that's just not our expertise. But why are we working on infant, infant mortality? Because its outcomes are incredibly um, unfair by race. Um, so you know, people think it's class, but women of very high income, like $75,000 or more, have the same infant mortality of white women, black women of 75000 or more, same infant mortality rates of white women who make under 20000 so the highest level that they, that they mark of, of black women of the highest level of incomes have the same infant mortality of white women with the lowest incomes. But then when white women go from four to 40 or 60 or $80,000, infant mortality gets to be really quite rare, but not for black women. Why is that? That's not black women's fault. 
right? That's, that's something in the system. So we're looking at that, too. And uh, there's incredible work going on at IUPUI's, uh, um, both at uh, IU Health, the other, all, actually all the health systems here, but also the Fairbank School of Public Health. Incredibly good stuff, but we're gonna ha- we think we could be helpful. So those are the systems now, if we can make inroads. And, we, and we're very clear. We, we have made, even though I have trouble looking beyond five years, the, the foundation is saying we are in this for um, multiple generations. We, this is our new mission for the next 20, 40, 60 years until we dismantle systemic racism. But even though that's really long-term, I see meaningful, positive change every day. And the fact that people are talking about race, the, cham- you know, the Chamber and CICP, Central Indian Corporate Partnership, have both said that we have now made it okay to talk about race. And that's the first, you got to talk about it to learn about it. you got to learn about it to change it. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We have come to the end of the podcast, and we end the podcast with the same five questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Question one, what was your first job? A dishwasher at a restaurant. Which are? My sister got me that job. That's one of my network jobs. I wanted to kill her for getting me that job. It was a horrible job. It was uh, in Eastern Washington. Long story. What was your first concert? I think it was James Taylor, but I'm not 100% sure. So when I remember- You don't remember it? I, well, <laughs> You know, I uh, I wasn't I, I was late to the concert world. I, it's not something I went to. I didn't do that in high school. I wasn't that into music in high school. But I the bet first you are now. I am Mary big Gale. time. I know I'm big time into music. I remember the first time I was really excited about going to concert was James Taylor at San Diego State in like a four thousand seat amphitheater with a pretty girl, not not Gail because that was, I didn't know her then, but, uh, that's what I remember. That's what I remember about my first concert, whether it was really my first concert or not. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? I think that, uh, I think, you know, if you asked me that a year from now, it would probably be different, but right now I would recommend just mercy. We were talking about that before the podcast. Um, which is by Brian Stevenson, and the movie's coming out. It's actually at Heartland Film Festival, but it's coming out in December. Go see the movie, but I'm sure the book will be better than the movie it always is. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech uh, on, in Washington. I, I, have have, I have a dream speech. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Barack Obama. You are uh, hitting the uh, big giant middle of the Venn diagram. There's a lot of the same answers, and I think it proves that how reasonable this city is and the people in it. There's a lot of... There are always fringes, but there are a lot of people who are choosing the same. I think the most popular answer, Spangle, forgive me, is the signing of the Declaration of Independence. But 
the MLK speech has come up several times, and it's amazing how like-minded people are when it comes to trying to find something reasonable. Our listeners may or may not have heard of the Indiana Historical Society's Living Legends event and program and honors people who are living Hoosiers who have made a difference. And on the list, people like Larry Bird and Mark Miles and Allison Melangdon and Jim Morris and also person who was kind enough today to hang out with us, Brian Payne. His legacy is all over the place. And while you may only recognize part of it in the cultural trail, uh, it is much broader and deeper than that. And we only hope your participation in our city grows and continues. Well, thanks. A great honor to be with you. And uh, Danielle, uh, great to see you as always. And Robert, keep up the good work. Uh, very honored to have this conversation with you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Danielle. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.